Planets on fire, and this is hell. Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Best of 2023. Interviews selected by listeners and staff of This Is Hell as their favorites of the year. If you have never heard the show before, this is a great way to get introduced to the way we've been manufacturing dissent since 1996. To find out how this is not the media, this is hell. If you are a longtime listener, it's a great time of year to introduce others. Family, friends, enemies, frenemies, that person sitting next to you on the bus who you want to strike up a conversation with, someone you just met at a party or a bar that seems cool, that cop that just pulled you over for speeding, whoever you happen to be in contact throughout your day. This is the best time of year for you to turn someone on to This Is Hell because throughout the month we will be playing the very best of the year chosen by you and us. The voice of our guest in the first interview we will be playing today during our best of 2023 series may sound familiar, especially to recent listeners. That's because our first interview is with last week's first guest, journalist and author Christopher Ketchum. Christopher was on last week to talk about his recent article at Harper's Magazine, The Machine Breaker, Inside the Mind of an Eco-Terrorist, on Chris's accidental meeting with a soon-to-be-convicted eco-terrorist who, at the time, and unbeknownst to Chris, was being watched and recorded by the FBI. Last week was Chris's third appearance on This Is Hell in 2023, and apparently our listeners love when Chris is on the show. His first appearance on this year's show was back on January 11th, when we spoke with him about a story at The Intercept that he co-wrote with Charles Kamenoff. The shutdown of luxury emissions should be at the center of climate revolt. Climate disorder won't be remedied, through an orderly march of green energy. The world must also reign in consumption. That was the article that Chris and Charles wrote for The Intercept back in January that we talked with Chris about back in January. So we heard from Slug on Patreon, Hugh on Discord, and Ashwin at the Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group page, who all told us that was one of their very favorite interviews of 2023. On top of that, the interview we are playing today to start off the best of 2023, the interview that we're going to be playing from January with Chris Ketchum on luxury emissions was also, according to SoundCloud, the third most listened to interview of the year. Later this week, we will be playing the second most listened to and the most listened to interviews of the year, according to SoundCloud. Now, we can't be certain that these are the interviews that are the most listened to because we're on a number of other outlets, five different radio stations, and we don't know how many people are listening to those radio stations when those shows are being played. So this is only according to SoundCloud. Chris was also on in May this year to talk about his Truth Dig article, The Green Growth Delusion, 
Advocates of green growth promise a painless transition to a post-carbon future, but what if the limits of renewable energy require sacrificing consumption as a way of life? You can go to thisishell.com and search on Chris's name, Ketchum, K-E-T-C-H-A-M, where you can find that conversation with Chris for free, as well as all of our conversations from this year with Christopher Ketchum. Chris writes at Denatured, his journalism not-for-profit, and you can find Denatured and support Chris's writing at ChristopherKetchum.com. We want to know what your favorite interviews of this year are, 2023. What were your favorite interviews? Who were your favorite guests? And if we play your suggested interview, we will thank you personally on air during our upcoming Best of 23 set of shows, just like we want to thank Slug, Hugh, and Ashwin for suggesting Christopher Ketchum to be our first interview to be played here on the Best of 2023. You can email us your favorite or favorites. Make as many suggestions as you would like. Send them to chuck at thisishell.com or you can offer your suggestions via Facebook or comment at our post on the subject at facebook.com slash thisishellradio or at the announcement on our Facebook group page, Welcome to the Hellhole, or in our Discord community or on X at This Is Hell Radio or on Patreon if you are a subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. We want to know who you learned from the most, what conversations you can't stop thinking about you can't stop talking about with uh, to your friends uh, the discussions here on this is hell that had the biggest impact on the way you view the world tell us who were your favorite guests what were your favorite interviews and together with you we can program the best of 2023 Again, this is a great time of year to introduce your family and friends to the show by turning them on to the year's very best of This Is Hell. Again, if we play your suggestion, we will thank you on air. On Discord, in our Discord community, Jessica B. mentioned a couple more of her favorite guests and interviews of 2023. Jessica hopes we play our interviews with Katie J. Wells on the book Disrupting DC, The Rise of Uber, and The Fall of the City, which she co-authored with... Kafi Otto and Declan Cullen. She also liked our conversation with London, as in Jennifer London, L-U-N-D-E-N, who wrote the book American Breakdown, Our Ailing Nation, My Body's Revolt, and The 19th Century Woman Who Brought Me Back to Life. Producing this Best of 2023 inaugural edition is Chris Coolfan. Chris, how are you? Anything new by you? How was your weekend? My weekend was quite good, actually. Uh, I went to Schaumburg, Illinois, outside of Woodfield Mall. We had a big show out to support us, to demand a ceasefire uh, to stop on Gaza among basically justice for the Palestinian people. So uh, nice and hook up with suburban folks. It was actually really, really cool. So what organization were you working with out there? Um, it was something called AM Civic. Uh, we just drove out there because my partners uh, works with If Not Now. Okay. And so she hooked up with them like via some Zoom call. And then she, of course, I'm the one with the car. So we, <laughs> we drove out there and uh, no, it was a blast. And I always love going to suburban rallies just because it's like there's life beyond the city borders. So it's yeah, a but it's a weird life out in Schaumburg. Yeah, I, I like buses and I like taking walks on sidewalks. So I can't, uh, I used to live in Wheeling for two years in my life. So wow. I miss, I love sidewalks and buses because I like the option of not driving sometimes. So. Oh yeah, I bet. I'm sure. I, yeah. I, luckily I don't drive because I'm legally blind. I guess I should be, <laughs> I guess that's lucky, I guess. But uh, yeah, I can't imagine how tempting it is to drive all the time, even if when you're in the city, even when you have access to mass transit and sidewalks. It's so weird when you get out to the suburbs, even as close a suburb as Evanston and all of a sudden the sidewalks just disappear. 
Yeah, one of my friends, he moved to Orland Park, and he was just like, for three blocks, I have to literally drive because there's no sidewalk. And that was so weird for him because he also, you know, grew up in the city, so. That's very, very weird. My weekend was actually a weekend. I still worked, but not as much as I usually do. And I took all of Saturday off, which is the first time I've done that in six months. My first Saturday off in six months. And the only reason I got that Saturday off six months ago was because I was having surgery. So it was nice to get some actual time off to do whatever I wanted. And apparently what I wanted to do was continue recovering from this cold that you can probably hear in my voice. I got this cold while visiting family over Thanksgiving, which already feels like it was a long time ago, despite it being like only 10 days. This time of year is so weird like that. There's always this stressful run-up to one celebration or another, and then it happens, and just like that, it's over. And only a few days later, and the whole thing seems as if it was in your distant past, like a mere anomaly before you just get back to the grind. Happy holidays, everybody. But more important than the fleeting experience of joy we're allowed to have every year. Chris, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what are you not looking forward to this holiday season? Mm, No, that's not. I gave you the wrong one. You know what it is? It's, I can't believe I put the wrong one in there. It's, uh, what kind of hell should uh, Henry Kissinger be experiencing? I'll get you the exact wording uh, when we go when, during the Chris Ketchum interview. I'm sorry, I gave you the wrong one. I apologize, Chris. It'll never happen again. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merch you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at the same places you can tell us your favorite guests and interviews for 2023. At our Facebook page or our Facebook group page, Welcome to the Hellhole, or Twitter, or Patreon, or Discord, or via email. Brave enough to be streaming live, and I know I gave you the right hangover cure. (laughs) Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover cure. This is Hell, and Chris has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure. Do not overeat while drinking. It will just make things worse. Who knew? Last week, the New York Post ran the story, a big meal with alcohol can make your hangover worse, experts say. The the article states, if you think your extra helping of holiday dinner will offset your headache from the bottle of wine you downed by yourself, think again. Experts explain that even though eating a lot of food while you chug cocktails, may make you feel less drunk because it slows alcohol's release into your bloodstream. It also slows your body in breaking down the alcohol and won't keep you from getting a hangover. In fact, eating lots of food might actually increase your hangover recovery time. Dr. Hussein Ahmad, consultant at Click to Pharmacy in the UK, told the Daily Mail, although food is often recommended to accompany alcohol, it can slow quickly your body metabolize, metabolizes alcohol. I'm sorry. It can slow how quickly your body metabolizes alcohol, meaning it takes longer to leave your system. The post cites Clifford Stefan, nutritional scientist and founder of sober support site Booze Vacation, who has a warning. The solution to, eat too, the solution to eating too much, which makes hangovers Worse is not to drink excessively on an empty stomach, which can lead to fatal alcohol poisoning or an alcohol-induced injury. 
Health explains, when you drink on an empty stomach, much of the alcohol you drink passes quickly from the stomach into the small intestine, where most of it is absorbed into the bloodstream. This intensifies all the side effects of drinking, such as your ability to think and coordinate your body movements. That makes this week's hangover cure. Do not eat too much or too little food while drinking. Yeah, so it's like the Goldilocks kind of thing. Don't eat too much, don't don't eat too little. Chris, while I'm doing this next little read, check your inbox. I just sent you the correct uh, question from hell for this week, and this is I'm done doing this read, and I ask you what Seb's up to this week. You can also tell us this week's hangover cure. Coming up, the first in our interview in our Best of 2023 series, Chris will have our Patreon subscribers answers to this week's question from hell. We'll tell you what happened on last week's bonus podcast for Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell. We'll share with you the rest of this this week's best of 2023 interviews. And Dr. Sebastian Vopper, who has a PhD in history, has an all new past inside the present when he offers the historical context of the past to help us have a better understanding of the present. So Chris, what is Seb talking about during this week's past inside the present? Seb explores how Theodor Herzl turned Zionism from a disparate Seb explores how Theodor Herzl turned Zionism from a desperate groups into a global movement. Uh, disparate groups into a global movement. All right, that sounds pretty interesting. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. Before we play our January 11th interview with Christopher Ketchum on luxury emissions, I want to stress a point that Chris made on last week's show. The planet will survive what we are doing to it. Humans may not. Humanity may be doomed. But the planet will survive, which may be of some relief, but it shouldn't be. Because if you think about it, what's worse, the extremely wealthy wantonly destroying the planet or that the far too rich for their own good are destroying life as we know it? Which is worse, destroying the planet or destroying the other humans that you're sharing the planet with? And now, as chosen by listeners and staff of This Is Hell in no particular order, the first interview to be featured on the 2023 edition of The Best of This Is Hell. This is hell. You will be surprised at how much the super wealthy contribute to greenhouse gas emissions that cause climate change. I mean, I know you think it's a lot, but it's a lot more than than I thought, at least. And I thought it was a lot, too. Get this, as today's guest tells us, the world's richest 10% account for 50% of fossil fuel burning and carbon emissions. Half the emissions are caused by 1 in 10 people. It takes 90% of us to make up for the emissions of that 10%. We make the other 90% make as many carbon emissions as the top 10%. And somehow they've convinced all of us that we want to be able to jet set just like them and burn our own luxury emissions flying over a world that suffers for our own selfish indulgences. Here to talk about climate action, global warming, and the role of the super wealthy returning to This Is Hell, journalist Christopher Ketchum, who co-wrote the Intercept piece, The Shutdown of Luxury Emissions Should Be at the Center of Climate Revolt. Climate disorder won't be remedied through an orderly march of green energy. The world must also rein in consumption. Christopher co-wrote the story with Charles Komanoff. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Christopher. 
Yeah, hey, how you doing? Good. It's been far, far, far too long since we've had you on the show, so I really appreciate you being back on. And this is a topic that isn't being discussed. Why do you think personal consumption is not being as... I mean, we hear about, like, you know, consumer action when it comes to, oh, you should use a cloth bag when you go grocery shopping. But other than that, why isn't consumption directly being... Why hasn't consumption being directly confronted prior to the most recent action? Um, because it is a third rail of American. Let's just talk about American politics, right? Um, in America, we are entitled. We believe ourselves to be entitled with um, an incredible rave of energetic and consumption privileges and um, to ask the American consumer to sacrifice in that manner is an affront to the American dream. So instead of um, basically laying laying it on the line with Americans and saying, hey, look, you know, if you want to have a sustainable society, you're going to have to cut down on travel and consumption of all sorts of things and consumption of all sorts of foods. And um, and you're going to have to drive less and you're going to have what will perceive to be less freedom, really, because energy does equal freedom in a in a, a you know, a a dynamic techno-industrial society. Um, well, people don't want that. People have been, people, American citizens have been um, have been uh, brainwashed, propagandized to believe that their right is uh, one of constantly rising affluence. And um, of course, now that pathological worldview has been exported worldwide. So for example, the rising middle classes in China are also seeking the same path of, of uh, affluence. And, um, you know, the, the effect of all this is going to be catastrophic in the long term in terms of uh, the totality of carbon emissions. Um, and, um, you know, nothing's being done. Carbon emissions continue to rise inexorably the total ecological footprint of the developed world uh, continues to rise. The total material throughputs continues to rise. The catastrophic effects on wildlife and ecosystems worldwide continue to be uh, felt and are getting worse and worse and worse. And so, you know, I was prompted to write that article with uh, with my buddy Kamenov because here are protesters who are, you know, who are, they broke into Shiphole Airport uh, in the Netherlands and basically occupied the tarmac where um, luxury jets, private jet uh, jets were um, either waiting to take off or just uh, housed and um, basically shut down the airport or shut down that part of the airport where you have, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, luxury, uh, luxury high-end um, private jet travel. So, you know, when you when when I describe it in that sense, like, all right, so they stopped a couple of jets for a day, big deal, and it's true, it's not a big deal. It's uh, it's a drop in the bucket of what needs to happen, but it's a good start. So, um, so kudos to them. I mean, I think what you know, I, I quote a guy, an eco saboteur, who um, who I'm profiling for Harper's Magazine. Because I was actually living with this, I was living in a cabin in the New Mexico wilderness with this dude while I was writing this article, and um, and uh, so I showed it to him, and he he goes, he's a Texan, he says, well, hell, man, 
they should have just destroyed the airplanes and then go to the manufacturers and destroy the airplane manufacturers. And, well, I'm sorry to say, but he's right. Because stopping some luxury jets for one day ain't going to do the trick. Maybe, and you know what? Maybe destroying the airplanes on the tarmac and then destroying the airplane manufacturer's capability to make the airplanes won't do anything either. But you you got to start somewhere because we are we are in a we are in a hell of a bond ecologically. But this this kind of action has happened in the past when it comes to I was just thinking about this as you were saying of uh, you know destroying the airplanes, um, uh, the attacks that happened in I believe it was in Colorado against SUV dealerships and blowing up SUVs. But people just took that as an act of uh, vandalism, as an, and then people conflate vandalism with violence, and so they look at it as a, an act of violence. Why do you think that kind of strategy would work when it comes to private jets if people had such a really negative reaction to? the burning of just some SUVs in a, in a parking well, I, lot. I, I don't, I have no idea whether it will work. I'm saying that all things should be, all all options should be on the table. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm all in favor of destroying uh, SUVs. Um, and these are not acts of violence. An act of violence is, um, is force perpetrated against living beings. That's violence. When you destroy a piece of property, that's, to me, it's not violence, it's sabotage, it's property destruction. Um, but it's not violence. You mentioned how, uh, when it comes to consumption, it's the third rail of American politics, which was actually the exact same words I was going to ask you if it was a third rail. But but why under neoliberalism, when everything is about uh, personal responsibility, why is consumption a third rail? Or is consumption just a third rail when it comes to the wealthy, because even when there's uh, problems in public schools, even President Obama said, you know, this is an issue with the family. The family needs to do something about their kids' education. It was never something about how the system is might be falling short and that it might, you know, we need more help for these kids. It was always about personal responsibility. So why does consumption get to avoid that, you know, personal responsibility critique that is so embedded throughout neoliberalism? Is it just that this is personal responsibility and consumption when it comes to the very wealthy? Yeah, well, remember something. You know, the the under neoliberalism, the 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 poor, the working class, um, the lower middle classes, they all have to practice personal responsibility, you see, but corporations and the wealthy who are served by corporations and the wealthy who are subsidized by government in collusion with corporations not so much personal responsibility right so um i think we're just looking at the the hypocrisy of the class system right so these these uh obligations these social obligations apply you know to the to the to the lower classes but not to the upper classes i think that's the explanation for that you and your co-author uh, start by writing 700 self-described climate rebels breached the chain link fence surrounding Amsterdam Schiphol Airport, the world's third busiest hub for international passenger traffic on November 5th. And this is an airport that has been uh, facing a lot of labor shortages of late uh, as well. Uh, You write that with bolt cutters, they opened holes in the fence and poured in some of them on bicycles and raced across the tarmac. Others laid ladders against the nine foot high fence and topped it on foot. So are these kinds of climate protests becoming commonplace in Europe? Are European activists outpacing activists back here in the U.S. when it comes to confronting climate change? 
yeah, I mean, in, I think in Europe, yeah, they are they are more radicalized, mostly because of you know groups like Extinction Rebellion and the A twenty two network and folks like Roger Hallam, um, you know, the, the the great English activist and co founder of Extinction Rebellion. Um, so yeah, for sure, I think I, I I don't know. I mean, American American protesters are just kind of, from my perspective, just kind of weak need and milk toast, frankly. Um, so yeah, I, I think that, um, I think for example, you know, you have the, there was the sort of infamous incident now where two, um, two climate protesters, very young, you know, 18 year old women, um, threw soup, Campbell's soup onto a, onto a painting like a Van Gogh or some such at the National Gallery in the UK. And, um, you know, the, the, the painting is, is totally protected by like, a, the, you know, like 50 panes of glass and, you know, a frame, like, a, you know, a frame that'll survive a nuclear war. But everyone freaked out because they were desecrating art. Oh, no. What, what, quel horror. Well, um, you know, their point was that we're not going to have any food to eat. And there's not going to be art to enjoy if you have a totally destabilized earth system, right? And so I think those kinds of symbolic actions on the part of these more radicalized protesters in Europe are really necessary and that we should embrace them, you know? And for people to, for, well, people, comment, commentators and pundits and, and, and mainstream uh, climate activists to in you know to impugn those sorts of actions and say, well, you are sullying, you're sullying uh, the the heritage of humanity. I, I just think that's that's silly um, and narrow. So, yeah, I mean, I think American activists should do i mean you guys were describing a forced occupation down in atlanta that's what's needed bodies on the line to stop the mega machine from its its so-called progress you know this juggernaut marching across planet earth it's going to swallow up every goddamn ecosystem that it can in order to perpetuate its own growth and that's what we're we're, we're we are really facing here. We're facing what Lewis Mumford called the mega machine. Um, and it's, it's got to be stopped. You write that a few days after the Skeppel uh, revolt, climate activists under the banner of scientists Re rebellion uh, disrupted operations at private airports in four U.S. states and a dozen other countries, according to a New York Times roundup. And I want to talk about the media a little bit here. You are correct. This was reported in the New York Times. It was even in Section A, which is surprising. Often these are buried in the business section. But it was way back on page 15. Does climate action news get buried when it does get reported here in the u.s oh for sure of course of course man look if you look at and, and there's a there's a bigger problem here and the problem is that there is the refusal on the part of mainstream media and the gatekeepers who run these institutions like the new york times to look squarely at the science now showing that techno-industrial society is on a trajectory toward toward near-term collapse now Collapse, right, is not 
equivalent to a dude walking down the street and having a heart attack and dying. Collapse is, the, is defined as the unraveling of complex systems under the pressures of maintaining complexity, right? That's the definition that the, the great anthropologist Joseph Tainer um, provided for, for collapse. So when I talk about the tra trajectory toward collapse, I'm saying that because of biophysical instability, because we've we've left the Holocene and entered a period of 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 Gaian insta instability. You know, the Gaia. If you look at um, uh, what's his name's Gaia hypothesis, uh, you know the 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 once you destabilize that system, the, all bets are off, man. It can go in all sorts of directions with all sorts of tipping points that are unknown and with consequences unknown. So. You know, we're we're facing we're facing a major crisis here. The media doesn't want to look squarely at that crisis because I think I think most of the gatekeepers in the media are embedded in the system of affluence and comfort. They are elites themselves. You know, there's a study done. Oh, I think out of MIT or maybe it's Cambridge. It was called the Handy Study. Human and Nature Dynamics is what Handy, the acronym, stood for. And um, basically, it looked at how how societies collapse, right? And uh, one of the major factors is that you have a, if you have a society bifurcated into common, what they call commoners and elites, right? The elites who are buffered from the consequences of negative environmental change will maintain the system producing that negative environmental change right up to the point of the whole system falling off the cliff. So instead of adapting and altering that system so that it becomes more earth friendly, no, they maintain the system in it at it in status quo. But the status quo of course is untenable, right? So I cannot tell you how many times I've had conversations with editors who are like, wow, we don't want to talk about that or that's not really an issue when I say, well, hey, there's lots of scientists now discussing the the um, the possibility of uh, of you know uh, uh, of the unraveling of this hyper complex dynamic techno industrial order of ours and uh, you know a lot of folks are just not interested in hearing it and meanwhile I also hear from editors that that climate related articles or Ecolot articles that touch on the, um, on I guess you call it the ecological crisis, the world ecological crisis, don't quote unquote do well, right, with readers. That is, I, I guess that there's not a lot of clicks or whatever. They don't do well, um, which is of course a just a moronic view of. Uh, well, not moronic. It's, just, it's like totally, if you totally infused with the capitalist marketing mindset, right? Which says that journalism should cater to what the readers want. That's a lie. Journalists should just tell truth. And if the truth causes pain, if the truth causes anxiety, if the truth drives readers away, then we should do more of it because the truth is the only thing that matters. But in the case of our world ecological crisis, we are not facing up to the truth, man. Uh, you know, for example, I wrote I wrote another article for the Intercept. Um, it was published uh, just a week and a half or two weeks prior to the the one about the climate protests in in the Netherlands, and um, 
that article was titled addressing climate change will not quote save the planet right there's a there's a lie that's been spread by mainstream environmental groups that if we address if we just build out uh renewable energy systems everything's going to be fine which misses the 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 much bigger picture that any ecologist with half a brain will be able to illuminate for you, which is that climate change is just one part, one part of the, the world problematique, which is overshoot, ecological overshoot, the overshoot of human population and the overshoot of human economies, right? Um, beyond the carrying capacity, beyond the biological carrying capacity of mother earth. Um, and so that overshoot, you know, it can be seen in multiple ways. If ozone depletion, loss of tropical rainforests and woodlands, the, the expansion, the massive and continuing expansion of domesticated land, the massive die-off of, of wildlife, the domination of the planet by, um, by, by homo sapiens uh, and our domesticated um, uh, animals, um, Coastal nitrogen expansion, fisheries fully exploited, uh, biodiversity crash due to, again, the total domination by Homo sapiens of, not total, but the almost total domination of Homo sapiens uh, of, um, of the earth. Um, desertification, soil loss, chemical nuclear waste, freshwater shortages, and on and on and on. But mainstream environmentalists would say, well, uh, our only problem is climate change. Everything else is fine. Nope, there's no, we're not overpopulated. We're not overconsuming. We're not um, overshooting the limits to growth on planet Earth. No, none, that's not an issue. And so instead, what, what, is, what is offered to the public is a bright, bright, creamy green dream, right? That technology is going to save us. It's literally going to be a deus ex machina, right? Of solar and wind power and lithium ion batteries, right? Um, that is going to somehow subsidize or continue to subsidize our profligate lifestyles, right? And our our deranged uh, growth system, economic and population growth system, um, at the same time that we can, uh, we can um, basically wean ourselves off fossil fuels. These are all lies and but again, they are widespread lies given, and they are lies given the imprimatur, right, of authority from um, major newspapers and major environmental groups. We have had guests on the show before who have discussed the problems with population when it comes to climate change. But we've also had guests on the show that say that population isn't the issue. The real issue is uh, doing a really poor job at fair and equal distribution of goods around the world. That capitalism allows for the wealthy to hoard goods while the poor suffer. Is the pro Do you think the pro uh, problem is, and I don't want to make this a binary, so I'm sure it's a conflation of the two, is the problem uh the growth in population or is the problem the economic system that we have of growth that undermines the fair and equal access to goods that everyone in the world needs right the binary thinking here is exactly the problem that that i see across the board it is not one or the other it is both if we are to if, if we are to chart some sort of safe path through the world ecological crisis right 
then yes, we're going to have to reduce population massively, and we're going to have to reduce consumption and affluence massively, both. So it's not one or the other. And that's that simplistic thinking, man, is is that too has got to go. That binary thinking where, you know, I hear it all the time. Population is not an issue. Really? Okay. Talk to talk to folks in, in Africa, man, sub-Saharan Africa. They, they'll tell you that population is an issue. They'll tell you, I mean, if you read like Jared Diamond or you read um, Thomas Homer Dixon's uh, analysis of w- one of the primary causes of the genocide in Rwanda in 1994, it's overpopulation. Overpopulation that strained the resources of a small country. That was only one factor, but is a factor that's not discussed often enough. You were mentioning uh, Stephen McRae earlier. You quote an eco-saboteur by the name of Stephen McRae, an acquaintance of one of the authors of the piece you co-wrote, obviously you, who recently completed a six-year prison sentence for industrial sabotage. McRae states what the skep hole, as you were saying earlier, uh, people needed to do is destroy the airplanes on the tarmac and then destroy the airplane manufacturers. Because you were talking about how there's this focus on production, and there doesn't seem to be this focus on consumption. Is McRae saying the problem is, again, this is not a binary, that this is not consumption or production, but both? To be effective, does climate action need to focus not just on consumption and not just on production, but both? And how can that be done? Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the thing about it. All hands on deck and all options on the table. That's how I see it. The question of how it can be done, I don't know. That's up to that's up to the activists. I'm just a journalist who's pissed off. That's all. I'm pissed off that that my thy children's future is being mortgaged, you know, for for present day pleasures. Um, but how how that will work? I mean, how, look, let's be honest, man. You destroy those airplanes; those people are going to jail for twenty years. Just like I mean, McRae, he hit some some electrical infrastructure and so, and mining operations he's lucky he got only six years ruby montoya and, and jessica Reznicek, who were uh, saboteurs of um uh, i think the keystone pipeline they just uh, got six years you know and that's hard time hard hard time so the level of heroism and courage required to take these sorts of actions will have to be very high. You know, on the other hand, um, you look back to the history of the suffragettes, right? The suffragettes committed incredible acts of sabotage. <laughs> there are stories of, of uh, <clears throat> who was the, the leader of the suffragettes? I think it was Emmeline Pankhurst, I think her name was, or Susan Pankhurst. And... Um, they would go around, they'd have these well-dressed ladies going around with paraffin oil and like gasoline and setting buildings on fire and setting yachts on fire and blowing up statues and smashing windows. The, 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 the Pankhurst, I believe they were sisters. Was it Emmeline and Susan? Well, anyways, the, the Pankhurst sisters talked about the argument of the broken window pane. Because no one was giving women the right to vote, the men weren't allowing it. Well, the women said, well... To hell with that. We're going to disrupt business. We're going to disrupt society. We're going to turn. We're going to. We're going to turn the normal, the the daily course of life upside down until they recognize our rights. So, 
there is some precedent for this sort of thing working. However, the difference is that with any civil rights or human rights movement, right, you're talking about of effectively what I would say is that a rearranging of the deck chairs on the Titanic, right? Um, whereas a, because, I mean, if you think of techno-industrial civilization as an inherently unsustainable um, creature, right, that is going to probably destroy itself in the long run, simply because the very, the very, um, its very structure is not sustainable, right? Um, so if you think of it as the Titanic, okay, so we can rearrange some of the deck chairs of the Titanic. So, so some of the, some of the people sitting in the deck chairs have more rights and are more respected and we're doing that. Lovely. Great. However, that's a far cry from completely transforming the underlying system so that the Titanic is altered from its course toward, toward the iceberg. So we're talking about a fundamental transformation of of society that, you know, is going to be extremely difficult. Uh, I would say maybe impossible to achieve. Certainly, I think almost impossible to achieve in the short time frame that scientists are saying we have to, um, to reduce carbon emissions and broadly address the, the world ecological crisis. I'd find that pretty ironic that the uh, uh, there was a broken window pane strategy by suffragettes uh, to challenge the law, and then we have the broken window strategy of Mayor Giuliani in the early 21st century about not challenging the law, but about enforcing the law. So that's kind of ironic. We we're speaking with Christopher Ketchum, who co-wrote the Intercept piece, "The Shutdown of Luxury Emissions Should Be at the Center of Climate Revolt." You can follow Christopher on Twitter at C Ketchum Wild and. Uh, Christopher writes at ChristopherKetchum.com for his journalism nonprofit, Denatured. So uh, it, it is so uh, the Times article that you were mentioning earlier about the scientist rebellion that happened shortly after the Skephole uh, incident in early November. Uh, that Times story is from November 10th of last year, and it's by a person by the name of Vamal Patel. And Patel writes more than a dozen protesters, including scientists, were arrested at private airports in the United States, coinciding with similar actions around the world to highlight the toll of private jets on the environment, activists said. The protesters temporarily shut down the main entrance to Teterboro Airport in New Jersey and also picketed at airports in North Carolina, California, Washington State. They were joined by protesters who took similar actions at 13 other airports in 12 other countries, activists said. So far, so good. But Patel adds this climate, he adds this, climate activists have taken part in several high-profile stunts recently. But instead of mentioning the Skephole protest, which happened only a few days earlier, Patel reports that in October, climate activists flung mashed potatoes on a glass-covered Claude Monet painting, grain stacks, at a German museum. The $111 million painting was not damaged, officials said. Activists in Britain and Italy recently glued themselves to art. And that's one thing that's often uh, missing, as you were pointing out, that this art is protected. It is safe. That's often missing from those stories. They show some uh, sensational video of somebody throwing paint at a painting, and then they don't explain that that painting 
painting has not been damaged in any way. And as you write, and as you pointed out earlier, spattering of soup on museum art comes with an unsettling aura of selling humanity's heritage in order to save it. But the media, again, didn't report that it had not actually been physically damaged in any way. What happens when the media, like the New York Times, links luxury emissions to art destruction. How might that impact the argument of reducing luxury emissions? How might that affect the way in which the reader understands that story? Well, look, the key phrase there is 111 million for the Monet painting. Okay, really? $111 million for an effing painting? That right there tells you the perversion in which we're mired. The painting is worthless without a functional society to to appreciate it. The inflated value of the painting is part of is part of the system in which the super rich rule. It's a form of acid inflation that does not reflect the things we really need to value, right? So, I mean, it's just in, incredible to me. Yes, that, that there would be, there would be this uh, this horror over, not even defacing. They're not even defacing the paintings. They're just putting, <laughs> putting some mashed potatoes in some soup. I mean, hell, you could eat the food after you throw it on the painting. You know, just it's just abominable because again this is just missing it's missing the point and um and it's almost a tacit defense of of the the um of the privileges of the super wealthy you know um because because remember to, uh, you know uh threatening just threatening with your mashed potatoes the poor 111 million dollar painting is the focus how about we ask what would drive a young person to act in this fashion? Well, they're really concerned about their future, a future that's been sold out by the people running things. Which, And it happens, it so happens that a lot of the developed world is run as a gerontocracy a bunch of old rich people who don't give a rat's ass apparently about the future of these um, kids who are so desperate to get the public to understand the crisis that we're in, that they're throwing food at paintings at, at museums. The Associated Press reported on New Year's Day, the UK Division of Climate Change protest group Extinction Rebellion says its rebels plan to temporarily stop blocking busy roads, gluing themselves to buildings and engaging in other acts of civil disobedience because such methods have not achieved their desired effects. The group said in a New Year's Eve website post, as we ring in the new year, we have a controversial resolution to temporarily shift away from 
public disruption as a primary tactic. We recognize and celebrate the power of disruption to raise the alarm and believe that constantly evolving tactics is a necessary approach. Instead, we call on everyone to help us disrupt this corrupt government. The AP added to further its goals of getting politicians, corporations, and the public, quote, to end the fossil fuel era. The group said it would instead focus on broadening its support with actions such as getting 100,000 people to surround the Houses of Parliament in London on April 21st. Now, a lot of the reporting on this story came with headlines that say uh, Extinction uh, Rebellion has vowed to quit. So a lot of the things were just about how they were just not going to be protesting whatsoever anymore. And then you get to the bottom of the second or third paragraph and you find out they're trying to get 100,000 people to surround the House of Parliament in London on September 21st. Strategically, what do you think about Extinction Rebellion's evolution from disruption to mass demonstration? Can you have a mass demonstration that focuses on consumption and production? Well, no, look, first of all, a mass demonstration that surrounds the Houses of Parliament in the UK would by its very nature be disruptive. So they're not, I don't think Extinction Rebellion is ceasing any sort of plans for disruption. They What they're ceasing uh, are the preeminently stupid tactics of laying down in highways and pissing off motorists who are trapped in in the techno-industrial system in that this is the system we live in. We drive cars, there are motorways, our public transit has been eviscerated by the trucking industry, at least in the United States. There are many communities that are dependent on cars. If you lay down the street, all you're doing is pissing off average citizens who might be in your corner. Similarly, I saw a video of Extinction Rebellion activists jumping on top of a, of a commuter train in the UK, in London, causing the commuter, causing the train to cease operations as a crowd of angry people who just want to get home to their families yelled at them. Serves no purpose. What should, I think so, I think it's very, very smart that Extinction Rebellion has ceased this silliness and um, instead, uh, should they should be targeting government and corporations, government and corporations, target the capitalist state, target the capitalists themselves, leave average citizens alone, or you know, hell, disrupt, do what they did at at, at Schiphol Airport uh, in the Netherlands, just disrupt the lives of the super rich, make their lives hell, make this is hell. What happens every day for rich people? <laughs> so um, yes, I think it's I think it's very, and I actually did not know that I did not know that they renounced that policy because all along I was thinking, man, this is really stupid what they're doing. Well, it's not surprising that you didn't know. It took me a long time to find that article and find any reporting on it. I had to find it at the CBC. I couldn't find any of it, any reporting about that statement elsewhere other than their website. Uh, you also mentioned how Jonathan Leggett, one of the activists in Skepol, told you and your co-author, the super rich have got used to polluting as they please with a total disregard for people and planet. And private jets are the pinnacle of these luxury emissions that we simply cannot afford. Our action brought them back to Earth we wanted to show the extremeness and injustice related to this manner of transport. So 
Luxury emissions, it's in the headline for your piece. Luxury emissions, how would you define what that term means? After all, can't business executives claim these are not a luxury but necessary to do business that keeps people in jobs? Where do we draw the line? Is a, a hundred tourists going to some tourist destination, is that a luxury emission? Mm, that's a really good question. I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer because I, I, I would have to assume that where you draw the line would be rather arbitrary, right? It would depend on... on the social values of the people drawing those lines. It would depend on uh, if you have a, a collective and they come to a collective decision on, on where, you know, what what are luxury emissions? I mean, for the purposes of the article, luxury emissions are those that um, that are emitted by the really super, the super rich. Let's say, I don't know, I, and I don't even know what the super rich are. Do they make $10 million a year? Do they have assets of $10 million a year? But you know, make a hundred thousand dollars a year from their from dividends and stock options and the like. I don't know, but um, the point is, is that when you get rich, your carbon and ecological footprint skyrockets, and that's not tenable anymore. It's it's not not sustainable. So. You write the climate disorder won't be re- remedied through an orderly march of green energy replacing fossil fuels, the planetary build-out of wind turbines and solar panels, as you were mentioning earlier, while simultaneously making and plugging in a billion new electric furnaces and vehicles looks straightforward in a spreadsheet. In truth, though, ramping up green energy alone won't cut fossil fuel use quickly enough to meet the Paris warm uh, warming limit of 1.5 degrees Celsius, supplanting the world's combustion-based Energy infrastructure with an all-electric model will be too lumbering, too roundabout, and too full of its own drawbacks to fully bend the emissions curve in the brief time left. What do you think it will take for consumption of fossil fuels to drop, let alone their uh, conspicuous consumption of fossil fuels, as in luxury emissions by the super wealthy? Politically, culturally, socially, how willing do you think the people here in the U.S. are to cut consumption of fossil fuels? Uh, I don't think they're willing at all. <laughs> I think we're we're in a we're in a hard place, man. Um, yeah, I mean, look, why is China continuing to build coal-fired power plants? Hmm? Why is there, you know, <laughs> we're we're in trouble. We're in trouble because the the um, as far as I understand it, we're not going to be able to power the techno industrial system as it has been powered, right? With renewable energy alone. So we got a choice. We can go towards a carbon free system, but live lives that are at least lives in the developed world right that are um much straightened where our belts are tightened and our energy freedoms have been highly limited are people going to go for that nope new way man because you have an entire complex marketing propaganda I call it brainwashing of basically saying to people, you know, you need, you need affluence to feel good about yourself and look at that person over there. They're flying to Hawaii and they just got a new, they just got a new Prius 
a $25,000 Prius. Don't you want one too? I mean, that's how, that's how our system works. You know, it's uh it's sick. It's like a pathological system we live in that makes you feel bad for not having dead material objects or not being able to display yourself on vacation on Instagram, right? Or TikTok. So, I mean, I know this sounds dark, right? You're supposed to, at the end of the interview, you're supposed to have mandatory hope. Oh, we're just going to eat, we have uh, uh, gluten-free kosher cupcakes and electric cars. Everything's going to be fine. But that's bullshit, man. (laughs) That's not how things work. So to answer your question, I am very much without expectation that we will be, um, just to take this, the one, the one part of overshoot carbon emissions, right? Because as I was explaining earlier, climate change and carbon emissions are just one, one facet of the catastrophic course of techno-industrial civilization, right? So just in the matter of carbon emissions, I, I'm skeptical that we're going to get off fossil fuels anytime soon. You were uh, mentioning the impact of the wealthy on culture, on society, on our demand and our consumer desires. You write, as the skeptical uh, rebels surely know, luxury carbon, like all manufactured desire, is a contagion oozing inexorably from the sanctums of the few to become desires of the many. So do, I mean, so we know that the wealthiest through their uh, media displays, that they create demand and uh, dis- their displays of their consip- uh, conspicuous consumption in the media that does have an impact on uh, the public's desire to consume more, including more fossil fuels. So is celebrity in the United States, you were mentioning propaganda, is celebrity in the United States propaganda for consumption that is a cause of fossil fuel emissions, which cause climate change? Does celebrity in the United States today fuel climate change? Absolutely. 100%, man. So, yeah, I mean, what... What I was referring to, what Kamenov and I were referring to in those lines in the um, Intercept piece is the um, the concept that Thorstein Veblen first formulated, uh, which was that of uh, um, conspicuous display, conspicuous consumption, invidious, invidious consumption, invidious display. The idea that, you know, that that we are um, constantly comparing ourselves in in uh, the society to those higher um, in the ranks of class and that, you know, we want to be rich, man. I mean, John Steinbeck put it um, like this. He said, the poor in the United States, this is just a paraphrase, the poor in the United States think of themselves as temporarily embarrassed millionaires, right? So so the the idea is we're all going to be rich someday. We're all going to have those same privileges and those that same that same ability to lord, to lord over the world with money, and to to lord over the world with pollution. Um, so yes, absolutely, celebrity culture is toxic, man. You know, it's uh, just a, uh, it's just. Uh, just an insult. It's insult to intelligence, really, when you think about the 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 idea that we'd be looking up to these people who really do nothing for a living, by the way. I mean, like like celebrities. What do what do celebrities do? Actors, 
Okay. If you got rid of, if suddenly there was an, a great rapture and all the actors went to heaven tomorrow, what would change? Nothing. Nothing substantial in society would change. If you get rid of all the school teachers and the garbage men, then you have problems. So I think the school teachers and the garbage men are the celebrities, frankly. And, uh, and you know, and the baseball players, football players, uh, actors, and the like who, uh, who form the pantheon of our celebrity culture, we should send them to Mars, to an airless planet. So does the fight for the climate need to become a class war to be effective, in your opinion? Do you believe the class aspects of climate change and the inequality when it comes to emissions and things like luxury emissions is driven by a reluctance to discuss class in the United States and uh, an obstacle to addressing climate change? 100%. 100%. That is the issue that we're not talking about. Remember, there's no classes in the United States, man, we don't, we're all equal. <laughs> it's, it's all equal opportunity. Okay. Lies, lies, lies. Um, yes, absolutely. If we don't, if we don't address class and, uh, and the implications of class bifurcation and, and the extreme inequality and the rule by the wealthy, the rule by oligarchy, we're never going to get to a sustainable society. As I mentioned earlier, Elites are buffered by their money from the negative consequences of environmental change. They will resist altering the system, the system of growth, the system of capital accumulation, the system of constantly constantly expanding um, ecological footprint. They will resist any change to that system that has benefited them so greatly right up to the very end. So that effectively to change such a society, you got to get rid of the elites. And then we're talking about revolution. Well, how reluctant do you think the uh, gatekeepers, as you were calling them in the media, how reluctant do you think that they would be or are and reporting on any class aspect of any climate change action? I mean, would we ever even find out from the media that these are class-based climate actions? Um, I don't know. I haven't really tried. I haven't really tried specifically to interest editors at, say, the New York Times in an article about class warfare, or climate change activism as class warfare. So I don't know the answer to that. But what I do know is that such reporting appears to be um, rare. One last question for you, Christopher. First of all, thank you so much for being back on our show. It's been far too long. Christopher Ketchum co-wrote the Intercept piece, The Shutdown of Luxury Emissions Should Be at the Center of Climate Revolt. He is a a freelance journalist and author of the 2020 book, This Land, How Cowboys, Capitalism, and Corruption Are Ruining the American West. You can follow Christopher on Twitter at CKetchumWild, and he writes at ChristopherKetchum.com for his journalism nonprofit, Denatured. Christopher was on our 
show back in 2015 to talk about his then just published Harper's article, The Great Republican Land Heist. And if you do want to hear other conversations about climate activism and uh, class war, if you will, go back and listen to our interview from last year with Matthew Huber on that exact same topic. One last question for you, Christopher. And as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. Is climate change and the activism around it, is that a threat to the airline as well as tourism industries? Does climate change, this is always the question that you hear, does climate change, fighting climate change, do climate uh, climate actions mean fewer jobs for people in the airline and tourism industry? Yes, of course. I mean, it, look, it, it, tourism accounts for something between like 8 and 12% of all greenhouse gas emissions. Tourism is, is an obnoxious force in the world. Tourism leads to um, communities where you've got um, enriched business owners and then a, basically a servant caste who are um, scurrying about smiling at a bunch of people passing through their communities like ghosts in order to get tips. Um, tourism is, um, is yes, the, 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 the infrastructure that supports tourism is um, fossil fuel, fossil fuel extraction, fossil fuel production, um, airlines, automobiles, Restaurants, hotelier, chain restaurants, chain hotels, um, and uh, oh, oh, sorry, road building, lots and lots of road building, lots of tarmac, lots of concrete. All right, so yeah, I, I think I think tourism should just be abolished, man. I, I think it's I'm, I'm working on a piece right now about tourism at Arches National Park, and the effect that it's had there on, on the the nearby community of Moab, and it's it's really ugly. It's really ugly. See again, the enrichment of the few, and you know the landowners and the business owners. They make out, but the people who do the work in the community, they suffer high costs of living, unaffordable housing, miserable working conditions, and miserable treatment by tourists who think they're privileged. So, yeah, down with the tourism industry. Down with the airline industry. There you go. When we had uh, sociologist William I. Robinson on a couple of years ago, he was talking about how tourism is such a major driver of inequality in all those communities. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I, I can't afford to travel. I don't travel. I don't know if I would if I had the money. But I'm told by everybody who d does travel, I do not and cannot understand the world because... I do not travel. So it, it, will there be a less of an understanding of the world because all of a sudden tourism evaporates? <laughs> well, look, look, there's a difference between travel and tourism. Tourism is a, is a hyper-capitalized, uh, market-driven uh, system for profiting from place, culture, history, and, 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 um, and art, right? Okay. Travel is the is the act of of going somewhere, immersing yourself in that culture with respect and decency, and not doing it as part of a, a systemic profit making system. Nothing wrong with travel, man, but it's the it's the industry that has arisen around travel that has made it so toxic and pathological. 
mean, no one, for example, I go back to Arches National Park. Nobody, nobody wants to go to a national park and be in conditions similar to riding the four train into Manhattan full of crowds and people. Oh, that's not what they're looking for. They're not looking for a commercialism or commodification of land and space. They're looking to see the natural world and be free for a moment, for a blissful moment from the psychological torture of the techno-industrial system. That's interesting because it makes me think of uh, tourism as a form of colonialism and travel as something that's about education. Yes, travel is education. That is education, man. I mean, I lived in France for many years. They could call me a tourist, but I ended up living there for years. So I guess that makes me made me an expat. (laughs) The bigger picture is, yeah, tourism is tourism is, is bad news. And if we are to address carbon emissions, then tourism will have to go. And you have, of course, the techno messiness, techno maniacs, technophiles um, saying that we're going to somehow power our jets with biofuels. Oh, really? You're going to take all that land that's now being used to produce food and you're going to use it to produce jet fuels so rich people can fly. (laughs) Okay. Great idea. On that note and taking into um, thought and mind that uh, the name of our show is This Is Hell, Christopher, thank you so much for being back on our show. It truly is a pleasure. And uh, we're going to be in contact with you soon to have you back on the show because it's uh, it's been enjoyable speaking with you again. Well, right on, man. Thank you for having me. All right. Take care. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. And a quick update on what uh, Chris was just saying about uh, clean fuel for jets. Uh, Apparently that's running into, I just saw a story the other day, how that's running into a whole bunch of technological issues. And in the article, they never mentioned the fact that the amount of resources that would be depleted that could be used otherwise instead of for uh, air travel. That was never mentioned in the article, but apparently that technology is hitting a huge bump in the road, if you will. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to, this is hell. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Chris Coolfan. You are listening to the best of 2023. If you enjoyed our talk, as so many of our listeners did this year with Christopher Ketchum, on the luxury emissions of the uncaring wealthy literally killing us, show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com. Slash This Is Hell, or you can show your support for completely listener support of This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. On our most recent bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, as made clear during answers to last week's question from hell, which was, what are you not looking forward to this holiday season? A lot of you really do not like the holidays, and there's many reasons I'm not all that keen on them either, as I've made clear on many Patreon Uh, monologues recently. However, I think there's still a way we can win 
the war on Christmas. By looking at the holiday's origins, Thanksgivings as well, and considering the centrality of a myth, as well as religion and money in the way we celebrate today, by examining the root causes of what is so disliked about the holidays, we can reclaim them. They can be redeemed, and we can make them our own, free of the stress, capitalism, and cis we experience during this time of year, every year. Yes, the war on Christmas can be won by simply reflecting on its true meaning, which is not what Christian nationalists want you to think it is. Also on Patreon 15 years ago, right around this time of year, we are playing the best of 2008, just like we are starting the best of 2023 today. So back in 2008, listeners chose as one of their favorite interviews of the year, our talk with investigative journalist and New York Times bestselling author David K. Johnston, who was on at the time to talk, talk about his book, Free Lunch, How the Wealthiest Americans enrich themselves at government expense and stick you with the bill. David's been on the show several times. He was amazingly prescient back in August of 2016 when we discussed his book, The Making of Donald Trump, just three months before Trump was elected president. You can find that interview by going to thisishell.com and searching on Johnston, that's S-T-O-N, Johnston, and it's free. Again, that's the August 2016 interview we did with David on The Making of Donald Trump. You can find that for free, or you can just uh, you know tune into last week's Patreon, uh, Patreon podcast, hear my monologue on winning the war on Christmas, as well as our 2008 interview with David K. Johnson on his book, Free Lunch, How the Wealthiest Americans Enrich Themselves at Government Expense and Stick You with the Bill. That conversation from 2016 is really wild because he says so much about Donald Trump that eventually exactly becomes true. He even points out how uh, TV talk show hosts, hosts, late night TV talk show hosts are just going to be fueling, you know, fanning the flames of the people who are fervent Uh, supporters of Donald Trump. They won't see them as mocking the uh, president of the United States. They just saw them as all being traitors to the uh, president of the United States. So he makes a lot of really great points in that interview from 2016, as well as the interview from 2008. But the only way you can hear uh, me win the war on Christmas and an interview listeners chose as one of their favorites of 2008 on how the rich get rich by screwing the poor is by subscribing at patreon.com slash this is hell. By doing so, you also get a discount code word, a secret special discount code word for all of our stuff at this is hell.com when you click on support. You get a sneak peek at every week's uh, question from hell, and you can ask a question from hell for me, your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host. Chris, what is this week's question from hell, and how are our listeners responding on Patreon? This week's question from hell is, what special kind of hell should Kissinger suffer for all eternity? What special kind of hell should Kissinger suffer for all of eternity? Thank you to Pete for writing this week's question from hell. Uh, So how are uh, listeners responding on Patreon? Well, Greg here says, Kissinger is the middle of a human centipede with Suharto in front and Pinochet behind, while forced to listen to U2's Wither Without You on a continuous loop for eternity. (laughs) Wow, that's really awful. I did not know Human Centipede was going to be coming up in the responses to this week's question from hell. I should have guessed that, though. Any more? It's a visual stuck in my head. Yes, I don't Uh, like that at all. 
I don't, John wrote, I don't believe in the biblical hell through things are dark, things are damn tough here on planet Earth. As for Kiss, as for Mr. Kissinger, well, he is finally dead. Good. <laughs> That's a good point. I really liked uh, several years ago the Pope, uh, not the current Pope, the Pope before him, John Paul II, I think it was, not Benedict, uh, the John Paul II, said there is no hell. I thought that was kind of breaking news for the Catholic Church, you know? So uh, maybe maybe they're right, and this is hell. <laughs> uh, old Grouch wrote, his hell was here, and he was the chief trustee. <laughs> now he is in oblivion, gone, dead. Only issue for us now is to tell the truth of what he was and to figure out how to get those like him off our backs. Front page story in the New York Times today is all about uh, how Kissinger was the first person to figure out that, you know, you can be a politician and a celebrity at the same time. Like he was the first one to figure that out. Like Teddy Roosevelt didn't figure that out, selling his personality as a celebrity. Like Abraham Lincoln, with all of the different kind of uh, propaganda that was around Abraham Lincoln uh, during his campaign and whatnot. Like. He's not the first person. Henry Kissinger is not the first person to figure out that he could be a celebrity and a politician. And they're saying that he beat Donald Trump to the punch. These are not the first two people who figured out you could be a celebrity and a politician. John F. Kennedy, for God's sake, man, was at these all these galas with famous people. It's the most stupid article about Kissinger and how he hobnobbed with the rich and famous. It is so avoidable. Please avoid the article from the New York Times today on Henry Kissinger. Uh, any other responses? At oh, there's a few more. Okay. Uh, Essential wrote, Sisyphus, Sisyphus and scabies. <laughs> it's got consonants, too. And Altoona Pizza wrote, being led through the nine concentric circles of torment by his divine spiritual guide, Christopher Hitchens. <laughs> and Mason wrote, bombs dropped on him from B-52s forever and ever wow. and ever. Wow, that's pretty good. That's really good. Uh, and a simpler name please wrote, live forever in a locked room with all of his admirers. <laughs> oh, God. Is that it from Patreon? That's all from Patreon. All right, we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell later on this week's show. Remember, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins your their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag they want. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can post it on our in our Discord community, or if you are a subscriber at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thisishell, or email it to us at Chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner following Jeff Dorchin and his weekly moment of truth. And now, it's what you've all been looking forward to. Dr. Sebastian Vupper is a historian himself who gives us the historical context of the past so we can have a better understanding of the present in his segment, The Past Inside the Present. Take it away, Sebastian. The past inside the present. 
don't don't over promise things here uh, <clears throat> anyway but I, i'm i would be glad if uh, people actually came to this as hell to just hear me uh but i am under no such delusions and i'm not anyway. and i'm not holding against you by saying in discord that i sound like max headroom today that yeah i don't know what was going on with uh with a uh, uh, live broadcast anyway <clears throat> to on on to back to uh, my script and the program and everything um welcome back to israel weeks here on the past inside the present grab yourself a matzah burger some latkes fries and uh watch wash it all down with a hummus shake uh, during these weeks, I don't know why I wrote this. During these weeks, I want to explore the deeper histories of a bunch of issues connected to, well, Israel. The ideological origins, the historical parallels, and ultimately the history of the country of Israel itself. Uh, this week, I'm continuing with more background on the underlying ideology that eventually birthed the Israel we know and uh, love I guess some of us maybe possibly today. Uh, my goal with this series is to provide a better and more nuanced understanding of where Israel comes from beyond the somewhat simplistic reasoning of that the country was created out of necessity after the Holocaust, which is a part of the story, but by far not the whole thing. And as the tagline of the segment goes, I hope by exploring this deeper past, we can ultimately better understand the present. And as usual, I feel like I need to be very clear about this. My being critical of Israel does not mean that I am somehow opposed to the Jewish people as such. It does not mean that I am somehow in support of Islamic terrorism or Islamic fascism just because I oppose the kind of, you know, if you want to call it fascism that's going on in Israel, it's it's kind of fashy these days. But anyway, uh, so last week I talked about settler colonialism and how Israel fits the pattern of settler colonial states and how scholars of settler colonialism who define the field regularly use Israel as a modern example. The week before that, I talked about the predecessors to modern day Zionism. And today I want to delve into the origins of just that, what we today broadly understand as Zionism. This is fundamentally the ideological underpinning of the state of Israel. But nothing is ever a single thing, so we need to be very careful here to not lump too many disparate things into one. Because when we talk about the kind of Zionism that birthed Israel, we are specifically talking about political Zionism, as opposed to a bunch of other Zionisms. The Zionist movement is, to reiterate, the idea of a Jewish nationalism, as in that the Jewish people as a distinct ethnicity are collectively one nation, and that as individuals they should have fealty towards this shared nation and not to the non-Jewish nation states that in many cases wanting nothing to do with their Jewish citizens in the first place. This brand of nationalism emerged to nobody's surprise in the 19th century when the modern idea of the nation-state emerged. Jewish nationalism was an idea that was formulated by Austro-Hungarian journalist and political activist Theodor Herzl. Herzl is today considered the father of political Zionism and also kind of the father of Israel to some degree and uh, the originator of the idea that Jewish people should form their own nation state and also to some degree that this nation state should ideally be located in Palestine, the Jewish homeland. 
Herzl's fundamental ideas of Zionism were very much a product of their time. He studied law in Vienna and joined a Germanic fraternity there. But his fraternal brother disappointed him by engaging in crass anti-Semitism, um, proving that fraternities have been awful since there were fraternities. So Herzl left them in disgust. He eventually then started a career in journalism working for the Neue Freie Presse newspaper out of Vienna. He became their French correspondent and moved to Paris. And in Paris, Herzl supposedly witnessed the anti-Semitic mass protests by the French prompted by the Dreyfus affair. Uh, this was a highly publicized judicial scandal in which a Jewish artillery officer was accused of treason for handing over military secrets to the Germans. Um, I don't have time to go into the details there. That that should be sufficient. It's uh, he was ultimately proven innocent, and 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 the the uh, French admiral, uh, admiral generality, the French military leadership, had apparently tried to cover up things that actually uh, like their own people had done, and just blamed it on Dreyfus for being Jewish for the most part. Um, and Dreyfus's Jewishness gave rise to a renewed wave of anti-Semitism across France. Parts of the French population implicitly accused. Their Jewish countrymen of being disloyal to the French nation, and that was a reflection of this long-held belief that the Jewish people were inherently, are inherently disloyal to whatever country they lived in, and only had true loyalty to their own, while readily betraying everybody else uh, whenever it suited them. Legend has it that Herzl saw these mass protests in which demonstrators chanted anti-Semitic slogans and realized that the Jewish people would never be safe in the nation states of Europe and needed a nation state of their own. Uh, that the assimilation into Gentile society that as a Gentile or Gentile, I never mind, that the assimilation into Gentile society that many bourgeois Jews uh, aspire to was simply impossible. Um, and that his witnessing of the mass protests was what gave rise to his conviction that Zionism was the only possible solution for the Jews of Europe was actually not quite true. This was more Herzl's posterior interpretation of things. In reality, what drove him to this position was actually uh, more uh, centered on Viennese politics uh, where a guy by the name of Karl Luger um, became mayor. Luger was a crass anti-Semite who uh, became mayor of Vienna in 1897. Uh, his positions on Jews inspired none other than a young artist you might have heard of, uh, Adolf Hitler, to develop his own anti-Semitism. And Luger's uh, success in Viennese society was to Herzl emblematic of a deep-seated anti-Semitism that was quite prevalent across European societies. Luger's rise to power and all that he represented was what made Herzl believe that no matter how well integrated Jews could be in European society, they would never be accepted as equals and that they would never be quite safe. And, well, I mean, there's a point to this, right? He had good reasons to believe this. Obviously, hindsight is twenty twenty on this one. But at the time, there was a strong movement uh, among Jews, particularly in Western Europe, to assimilate into the Christian societies of their nation states. Middle-class Jews across Europe aspired to themselves become respected members of these societies. Many saw anti-Semitism with worry, but also thought that these voices would eventually die down. Jews across Western Europe developed their own strong nationalist feelings towards the countries that they lived in. Uh, many even converted to Christianity, and many then also made the discovery that nothing really helped. They were still regarded as a foreign entity within 
their respective you know nations of origin uh the reaction to herzl from the european jews was then also by no means unanimous some obviously uh, and fervently supported his idea of a Judenstaat, of a Jewish state, um, which Der Judenstaat is his manifesto of Zionism that he published in 1896. Um, other people, other Jews across Europe then thought that the idea of Jewishness being is its own nationality was actually feeding into exactly the old anti-Semitic idea of Jews having only loyalty towards their own. And that there was, uh, and, and that there now was this emerging movement of Jews proudly proclaiming yet that yes, they were their own nation and had their own loyalties towards themselves was to many established bourgeois Jews, a very unwelcome development that provided proof positive to the anti-Semitic voices uh, that these Jews themselves had tried to quell with their own conversions and proclamations of national fealty towards European nations. But this was ultimately Herzl's conviction. Jewishness was a nationality, and the problem of those who had this nationality was that the Jewish people had no state of their own. Herzl began to attract a significant following to the idea of this political Zionism and the creation of a Jewish state and the planned removal of Jews from Europe. In 1897, the Zionist movement organized the first World Zionist Congress to be held in Basel, Switzerland. At this Congress, the Zionist organization was founded. Several existing proto-Zionist groups joined in, merging into this new umbrella organization. At the Congress, the so-called Basel program was developed by the congregants. And in this program, the organization laid out its goals, which boiled down to the creation of a Jewish state in Palestine and the organization itself enacting steps to further the cohesion of Jewish nationalism as a movement. In Herzl's view, it was important for the establishment of the Jewish state to be politically transparent and above ground. He did not want to continue with the practice some of these earlier proto-Zionists that followed essentially sneaking into Palestine and covertly undermining the political authority there by creating new realities on the ground by, you know, uh, creating these agrarian and exclaves there. Um, and at the Congress, the Zionist movement also adopted the Hatikva uh, as its anthem, That's the which in 1948 became the anthem of the state of Israel. Uh, you probably have heard it it's here or there. The organization also decided to spearhead efforts to collect funds to then further the creation of the Jewish state to buy land in Israel and to settle people there. Herzl, meanwhile, published an article in the organization's weekly journal, Die Welt, uh, The World, which he himself had founded. And in this article, he attacked any non-Zionist Jews as basically incorrigibly backwards and a stain on Judaism. Curiously, Herzl engaged in a lot of essentially open anti-Semitism towards those Jews not in full support of the Zionist movement. Herzl essentially correct, characterized those Jews opposed to Zionism as especially exactly the kind of Jews that anti-Semites accused all Jews of being. And it's pretty baffling to read today and almost seems like he is straight up trolling. The Chad Zionist is a strapping lad who embraces modernity and strives to leave the depravities of European society to make his own state. Meanwhile, the virgin anti-Zionist wants to stay behind as either degenerate and poor or a conniving banker type who wishes to remain living among the non-Jews he preys upon. It is really deeply odd to read that the father of Zionism himself consciously used these crass anti-Jewish stereotypes. Supposedly, Herzl later regretted publishing this diatribe. 
And so it is indeed correct to assume that political Zionism was from its infancy and even in the words of its own founder, consciously anti-Semitic, but anti-Semitic against only the bad Jews who opposed them. Beyond that, the movement even courted the participation of non-Jewish anti-Semites. Herzl stated even that, quote, we want to let respectable anti-Semites participate in our project, unquote. The stated goal of the Zionist organization was, after all, the same goal political anti-Semites had, the removal of Jews from Europe. Herzl was very much conscious of that, even buying into the idea since it would guarantee the Zionist movement brought support. What made it justifiable in the Zionists' view was that if the Jews removed themselves from Europe, it would be on their own terms, even if they fulfilled the dream of anti-Semites who wished the Jews gone. The Palestine Project would also purge the Jews from the roles they had been pressed into living in Europe. Instead of being merchants and financiers there, they would become hardworking farmers. Herzl and his allies began to cultivate connections to various rulers of Europe. Uh, this is quite impressive, actually. Herzl managed to facilitate a wide web of diplomatic connections at the highest level. He met with the leaders of the Ottomans, of the French, and even had an audience with Kaiser Wilhelm II. Uh, Herzl tried to get the German Empire to uh, make the proposed Jewish state a German protectorate and actually get some traction with the Kaiser, which is pretty astounding in hindsight, although ultimately this, this project fell through, obviously. Um, and through these acts of diplomacy, the Zionists sought to gain influence, especially with the rulers, rulers of the Ottoman Empire, in order to gain access to land in Palestine. After the turn of the century, several plans were proposed at subsequent World Zionist Congresses. One was to facilitate mass emigration by European Jews to the United States, but this plan was largely rejected because the Zionists and Herzl thought that unless they could found a nation state based on more agrarian principles, the quote-unquote lower quality Jews especially would not be purged of being scheming financial dealers, especially in capitalist America. And the plan to create a Jewish state on the Sinai Peninsula was rejected by the British, and then a proposal to create a Jewish state in Uganda in Africa was refused, especially by uh, the Eastern European delegations, and uh, also for good reason, because the land that they had chosen there was just unlivable, and uh, yeah, that would, that would not have worked out at all. Herzl then died from heart failure in 1904 when he was just 44 years old. The project of political Zionism to create a Jewish nation state obviously lived on. He himself became uh, he became stylized as a larger than life figure whose life had been in service to the Jewish people, which it's one of these statements that is both true, but also, as I hopefully have pointed out, requires a lot of qualifications. Next time, I'll take a look at the Zionist movement as it developed after Herzl's death and talk about some hellish piece of legislation that is back in the news again these days that needs some pulling apart, the Balfour Declaration. Ah, the Balfour Declaration. Everybody loves the Balfour Declaration. So, uh, Seb, uh, that was an amazing pass inside the present. I was... I mean, I had read some of Herzl's more anti-Semitic writing in some of his uh, more anti-Semitic uh, quotes in the past, uh, but I forgot about them. And then when you were rereading them, I was just like, just... It's just amazing his level of anti-Semitism. Yeah, it's it, like it's it's the you know like okay, this is the guy who's behind the the whole project, and suddenly and suddenly you read him and you're like, wait, what? He said what about his? Wait, wait, I thought this was for all of you, all of his. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I I read it. I read it in a uh, 
freshman history class. Uh, the oh, teacher, wow. the teacher had us read Theodore Herzl, and a whole bunch of students dropped just dropped out of that class as soon huh. as we started reading Herzl. They just dropped out, uh, and uh, you know what? I think that I may have dropped out of that class, but that was just because I dropped out of school. It had nothing to do with the class whatsoever. <laughs> Seb, looking forward to your next segment. Really looking forward to it. This has been a fantastic series, very uh, mind and eye opening. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Yep. So, Chris, who are our upcoming guests here on this week's Best of 2023 inaugural episodes? Upcoming guests will be, well, the next interview is is to be featured during the Best of 2023 series uh, is our talk with Stefania Maurizzi. Maurizzi. See? Maurizzi, yes. I didn't even put a pronunciation guide in there. That was pretty nice of me, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, very sweet of you, actually. <laughs> uh, well, it's going to be about our book, Secret Power, WikiLeaks, and Its Enemies. Yeah, it's a really good interview. She was, is a close confidant of Julian Assange. We had her on the show back in 2017 as well. You can find both those interviews at our website. And uh, all you have to do is search on Maurizi, M-A-U-R-I-Z-Z-I. But tune into uh, tomorrow's Best of 2023 to hear our interview with Stefania. And who's on Wednesday show? Oh, we, we finish off our week of Best of 2023 episodes by playing our conversation with Julia Rock on her article at The Lever, How Big Pharma Actually Spends Its Massive Profits. New, re- new research shows that pharmaceutical companies have spent more on enriching shareholders than drug research and development over the past decade. And this is really important to remember when it comes to the pandemic and the COVID vaccine. You have to remember that these companies like Pfizer, they did not develop this vaccine. That vaccine was developed by the uh, Centers for Disease and Control, uh, the CDC here in uh, the United States. And and uh, the Moderna one is developed by the University of Oxford, or Oxford University, I should say, in the UK. So you got to remember that they, the research isn't being done by these pharmaceutical companies. What they're doing is the manufacture and distribution. That's what their key role is, not the research. They don't invent these. They just make them after they're given the recipe. Beginning Monday... Today, we are running uh, our best of 2023 throughout all of December, as well as during the first week of the new year. So keep tuning in throughout all of December, as well as the first week of the new year, to hear the very best of This Is Hell, as broadcast in 2023, determined by the listeners and staff of This Is Hell. Tell us what your favorite interviews were, who were your favorite guests, and if we play any of the conversations you suggest, we will thank you personally on air, as we did with Slug, Hugh, and Ashwin today. All you have to do is send us your favorite or favorites to chuck at thisishell.com, DM us via X at This Is Hell Radio, post it in our Discord community, message it to us via Facebook at facebook.com slash this is hell radio or leave your reply in the comments or at our facebook group page welcome to the hellhole or share them with us via the announcement on patreon if you are a subscriber at patreon.com slash this is hell we hope to see all of you on wednesday december 20th 
Winter Solstice Eve for the annual This Is Hell holiday office party, which will be held during our regularly scheduled uh, office hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue, and beginning around 6 in the evening, just like office hours. Is your office not having a holiday office party? Make our holiday office party your holiday office party. Does your work not have an office? Make our holiday office party yours. Don't like a lot of the people you work with, but want to party with the uh, friends you have made at work? Make our holiday office party your secret get-together with co-workers who you actually like. This is how office hours are happening this Wednesday. I was not able to make them last week because I was sick. I was not able to make them the week before because I was out of town for the Thanksgiving holiday. So this is how office hours are returning this Wednesday. Well, they're usually happening every Wednesday. And they're, they're going to happen again on sol- winter solstice eve, as I was saying, during our holiday office party on Wednesday, December 20th. But they always happen at the bar downstairs from us, where I'm sitting right now, Carrie's Lounge, C-A-R-Y apostrophe S Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. So it's going to be freaking cold out. It was last night when I was at the chili cook-off, but it was, you know, mid-30s maybe. Around the fire pit out back it was just fine, so I hope to see all of you around the fire pit, not only at office hours, but hopefully during the This Is Hell holiday office party as well. Uh, anything else I wanted to mention? Uh, I guess that's it. Thanks to Chris Colfan. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz pretending to know what I'm talking about. Since 1996, this is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.